Continuing this morning in our series in Matthew, looking in chapter 3, moving on to verses 13 through 15, fitting to fulfill all righteousness. The Lord said to Malachi in the fourth chapter of his prophecy in verses 5 through 6, Behold, I will send you Elisha the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And so God is faithful to his word. And John comes preaching. Preaching like a whirlwind of fire. For John's preaching is neither seeker-friendly nor is it simply hellfire and brimstone, but instead is a scripturally balanced gospel, both the thread of unquenchable fire and the hope of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. This message John proclaims to the offspring of and a generation of vipers. He proclaims it concerning the one who comes after him. Christ, who will baptize, unlike John, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. He proclaims to them, make straight the paths of the Lord, for the kingdom of heaven and its king are at hand. And indeed, the king is literally at hand. While John was saying these things, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, it says that Jesus came up from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. Well, John's baptism was already causing quite the stir, both in the region of the Jordan and Judea extending to Jerusalem and indeed in all of Israel, for people were coming to him, both sons and daughters, blood born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also of the Gentiles. And even of the Roman soldiers and the tax collectors were coming to John to inquire what they ought to do considering that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. John created much of a stir. Are you the one who is promised? Are you the prophet to come? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elisha that comes before the great and awesome day of the Lord? John's baptism has called much ado. And yet... The baptism that he is about to participate in is more peculiar than any that has come before it and any that will come after it. Jesus Christ comes forth from Galilee. The king, having been tucked away for so long after the return from Egypt in a humble and overlooked place, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus comes from Galilee, not into the grandeur of a gilded temple, 
to pomp and circumstance and to, to waving palm branches and cries of Hosanna. But instead, his first introduction to the public is in a barren wilderness amongst the humility of a people being baptized unto repentance. Jews, the blood sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob coming and being ceremonially cleansed, a sign of repentance that was the same thing that they would do to a Gentile dog proselyte that intended to come alongside the promise of Israel to be grafted in. He comes in the desert to a humble people. For it is befitting the king to come to the place where the providence of God is calling the very subjects of the kingdom that is at hand. Before we turn our focus this morning to Christ, and we will, but before we do, I want to consider the ministry of John. And I think it is a case study in what the nature of ministry is often like. For ministry is both glorious and joyful, as well as awkward and uncomfortable. And I'm not talking about just the ministry of particular office. I'm not talking about the, the ministry of prophet or the ministry of the pastor or the ministry of the elders or the ministry of the deacons. I'm not even talking about the ministry of particular charge. The ministry of, of the choir master or, or, or of the, the youth minister of the children's minister. I'm talking about the ministry of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. This ministry is miraculous and it is joyful, it is glorious, and it is awkward and left-handed and weird and uncomfortable. Man, if uncomfortable's not for you, I don't know if the gospel's for you. You have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. You've got to be okay with being awkward. And man, you see it in John. You see, the issue here is this, that Jesus is both placing himself under the authority of a ministry that has been given over to one of the sons and daughters, one of the sons of Adam. He's placing himself under the authority of a ministry that is appointed to a man. A man who, by his own admission, says that he is not even worthy to carry Christ's dirty sandals. And yet here is the Christ placing himself under the authority of John's ministry. But maybe more to the point, it's even more awkward, not because of hierarchy of authority, but because being baptized with a baptism that has thus far been and will be perceived by the audience as being a baptism unto repentance does not seem appropriate for one who has no need of repentance. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 of our Lord, the author of Hebrews says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but... One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we really dove into this idea of what it means to repent. And we said that repenting, just from a grammatical standpoint, doesn't simply mean confessing your guilt. It doesn't even mean being sorry for the trespass that you have committed. 
It doesn't even mean just as the grammar would state a turning from or a de- departure from a, a position of sin unto a position of righteousness, but it literally has with it this idea where the reason that you depart, the reason that you are sorry is because in your mind and in your heart, the light bulb has gone off. And there is a recognition in your thinking and in your feeling that changes, that says at the very depth of your soul that this is what I was and this is what I did, and now I see the folly and the error of my way. And because of that, this has become repugnant to me, and therefore I am turning. Therefore I'm repenting. It's not just about going, oh man, if I continue down this road, if you do the math, if you work out the logic, if you solve for X, it's going to be bad. Therefore, I don't want to do that. That's not repentance. The repentance that John was proclaiming that was necessary to make straight the path of the Lord was a repentance where in your heart you recognize and therefore are changed. Which is never ever one time in all of eternity happened to Jesus Christ. Not once. Never once did the light bulb come on for him. He is the light that shines in the darkness. He's always been perfectly holy. Set apart from all creation. Completely other than. Without fault perfectly fulfilling not only the written word of the law, but the will of the Father's heart from whence the law came. And so, awkward. John's baptizing. He's calling out to a the offspring and a generation of vipers. This is what you need to do. You need to come down here. You need to repent. You need to be baptized as a sign of that repentance. You need to bear fruit. That is keeping with repentance. And here comes Jesus and he says, baptize me. And John's like, whoa. First of all, what are you doing coming to me? And secondly, don't you know this baptism is a baptism unto repentance. And all of these people are going to perceive it in that manner. I would have you note that John is only in the beginning moments of his revelation of who Christ is. He's only in the beginning moments that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks to come of understanding who his cousin on his mama's side actually is. And yet he already knows that this whole scenario that he has just found himself in is completely upside down. Just a moment ago, John was fine with what he was doing. He was fine with calling out the powers that be as a brood of vipers. He was fine declaring that the axe was laid to the root of the tree, that the winnowing fork was in the hand of the Messiah, and that he would burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. None of that bothered him a bit, and all of a sudden John's bothered. If we're going to look at the if we're going to look at, at, at the incarnation of Jesus Christ as his condescension. I think we have to look at the baptism of Jesus as the humiliation of John. Because that is exactly what is happening in John's own mind and in John's own heart. You say, well, isn't it an honor? Oh, yes, it is. And sometimes the highest honors can be the most humbling. 
And as we have noted before, everybody likes to talk about being humble, but nobody ever wants to talk about how you become humble because the fact of the matter is, is the manner in which you become humble is through humiliation. And so here's John's. And as kind of a foundational statement here, I would have you note that those who serve Christ, the Father honors. Those who serve Christ, the Father honors. In John chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus says it like this, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so here is a promise that comes from the lips of Christ himself, who John is not worthy even to carry his sandals. And he says, if you serve me, you'll be wherever I am. And if you serve me, the Father will honor you. And this is true, regardless of the circumstance of the individual who is serving Christ. I mean, isn't that the beauty of the gospel? That even Paul, formerly Saul, who was the greatest of all Pharisees and the chief among sinners, might come in service to his Lord by the grace of God and be honored by him. This is the promise of the gospel. Those who serve Christ, the Father will honor, even though... The honor is not deserved of themselves and even serves to highlight their own unworthiness. Have you ever found yourself in that position? Have you ever found yourself in a position where there is an honor bestowed upon you and you know, I'm not not talking about false humility, I mean you know for a fact in your own heart and in your own mind that you do not deserve the honor that is being bestowed upon you, friends, I guarantee you that will serve to highlight your own unworthiness. And so here is John and here is Christ. Here is the Elijah who is to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord, declaring, prepare the way, make straight his paths, crying out to a brood of vipers to to repent and turn for the axes laid to the root of the trees. And here is the one that comes to lay the axe with the winnowing fork in his hand. And John is comfortable dealing with vipers and he is uncomfortable dealing with Christ. This deal is upside down and John knows it. And so he says in verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? He says, Lord, just woe it up for a moment. Now when it comes to prophecy about John's ministry and the way that it would be the forerunner of the coming of Christ, we most often quote two references out of Old Testament prophecy. We quote the voice crying in the wilderness out of Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 and we quote Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 and 6 that we started with this morning that the Lord would send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. When we consider John's ministry it's almost always one of those two references out of prophecy that we go to. But the reality is, is the New Testament teaches us that the prophecy about John's ministry is scattered all over the Old Testament prophets and particularly 
all over the book of Isaiah. So if you want to see kind of a more fleshed out, a fuller testimony about what John's ministry would be, I think the best reference for the Gospel of Matthew would be the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 3, in verses 3 through 6, Luke records this. Then he went into all the region, that being John, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Now, what's about to be quoted by Luke is not one verse out of Isaiah. It's from three separate chapters. And this is what the Lord had to say to Isaiah about the ministry of John. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now right there in verse 6, all flesh shall see the salvation of God is taken directly out of Isaiah 52, verse 10. In Isaiah 52, verse 10, the Lord says to Isaiah that the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And here's the quote, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now that is the touchstone quote that Luke uses. A portion of Isaiah 52, verse 10. But I hope after all these years you understand the importance of context. These people were awash in the law and the prophets of God. When when, when a portion of Isaiah was quoted they would have grown up learning the context which it came out of and we would do well to do the same and so in Isaiah chapter 52 the context of the statement about John's ministry that the whole world would see the salvation of God in verse verse 6 it reads like this Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak, I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now, that may sound familiar to you because Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 10, speaking about the nature of evangelism. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace, who brings good news of happiness, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. 
Break forth together in singing, you waste places, O Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now Luke tells us that speaks about the ministry of John the Baptist in declaring the coming, the imminent coming of Christ. And in a nutshell, here's what that ministry is going to contain. First of all, it is going to speak to the salvation to come. Salvation that is knowing God. When in that day, they will all know me and they will know that it is I who speak when I say I am. This is the very definition of salvation that Jesus himself gives in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer when he says, This is eternal life that they know you, O Lord, and Christ whom you have sent. But Isaiah doesn't leave it there. It's not just that salvation is coming. In verse 7, he even explains the means by which salvation would come, the foundation of evangelism that John uses in Romans chapter 11 when he says, Blessed are the feet of those who come bearing good news. He talks about the salvation of knowing God, the evangelism that would bring that salvation to his people, and the reality of the watchman, of which John is the chief. And the last. The reality of the watchman is this. In verse 8. The voice of your watchman. They lift up their voice together. They sing for joy. Why? Because the friend of the groom hears the voice of the groom coming. Together, they lift up their voice. They sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. It is the privilege of these watchmen. It is the privilege of these men of which John is the chief and the last. To be the ones that get to sing for joy when the thing they have been proclaiming for so long that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the king is near and now he is so near. I see him coming and he's so near that John sees him and he sees him eye to eye. And it is glorious and it is uncomfortable. For for a fallen man to look a holy God eye to eye will always be glorious. And it will always be uncomfortable. Isaiah chapter 52 verse 8 is the reality of the watchman that is seeing the Lord eye to eye. That John the Baptist is living in Matthew chapter 3. What do you mean you come to me? To be baptized. I should be baptized by you. What do you mean coming to a baptism that has been unto repentance when you have no need to repent? This is as left handed and awkward as it can be. This is what John is living as he looks at him face to face. John knows his place and he knows it shouldn't be this way. And the honor that is being bestowed upon him only serves to highlight. In his own heart, his own inadequacy to perform it. 
And in verse 15, we see Christ's response. In verse 15, But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so what Jesus does is basically this. John protests. He objects. This baptism isn't for you and it shouldn't be me. It ought to be you baptizing me. John objects. And Jesus accepts his premise. Let it be so for now. Jesus accepts his premise. But he rejects his application. Jesus says, you're right in your thinking. John, but you're wrong in your application. You ever been there? Have you ever, quote unquote, meant well? (laughs) And maybe even been correct in what you were trying to accomplish, but just did a horrible job of actually accomplishing it? It's basically what Jesus says to John. He says, I accept your premise. I reject your application. He says, let it be. Let it be. It's a compound word in the Greek that is formed by taking a preposition and a verb and squishing them together. The preposition is the closest thing that we would have in the English is the word from. And it means to send out away. And so, you know, if, 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 um, if you have something and, and you, you, you press that out and, and you send it away from the source or the place that it was at rest, then it is, it is going out from. So it's the preposition for from and then it's the verb that means to send. And so this is the idea that something is not going out from. From you by accident, but it's on purpose. I'm sending it forth. Literally, to send forth from, but if you want to bring it in kind of the modern day English, what Jesus is really saying is something akin to let it go. John comes with his protest, says it shouldn't be this way, it ought to be you baptizing me, not me baptizing you, and yet you come to me, and Jesus goes, let it go, man. I agree. I don't disagree. I agree. Let it go. Actually, let it go is probably not correct because letting it go kind of has this idea that you're holding on to it and and it'll escape on its own if it will. Really what Jesus is saying is put it away. Cast it off. Send it forth from here. This idea that you have is good in its understanding. It is bad in its application, so cast it off. Send it forth, let it go. Guys, i got to tell you that while the grammar in the Greek would contain no indication of pain, I believe that the King James Version captures well the heart of John when it translates it like this. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Suffer it to be so for now. I love it. Suffer it to be so, John. Yes, you're correct. You're correct 
in the isolation of your summation that says that I have no business being baptized unto repentance, even if that is just the perception of the people. And furthermore, I have no business being baptized of you. And yes, you need to be baptized of me, but suffer it for now. Suffer it for now, John, because there is something greater that is at hand. Our conclusion, I think, would be this. Humility is necessary, yea, even inevitable, for fallen men before a holy God. And yet, humility is never a fitting excuse to deny His will once it is declared. Humility is necessary before a holy God. It's commanded of us. But it is never an excuse to deny his will. Look, John is the guy that just said to this brood of vipers, don't think that you should have any confidence because you're the sons of Abraham. Don't you know that God is capable even to raise up from these stones sons and daughters from Abraham? So if you think that makes you special and puts you in a place where God is beholden to you, then you are sorely mistaken. And if you continue in that, you will find out when the winnowing fork is in his hand. Now, if you're the guy that believes that if what is necessary is sons of Abraham, and you believe that God is able to look at this chunk of granite over here and go, son of Abraham, bam, there, I got another one, I don't need you. If he's capable of doing that, then how in the world could you not confess that he is capable of coming to you and go, here's the deal, let it go, buddy. Because what's necessary for today is for me to be baptized by you. If he can do this, how can he not do that? If he is sufficient to raise up a rock for his own sons and daughters, then how is he not sufficient to take you who are insufficient and make you sufficient to do that which he has ordained? Humility, while necessary before God, is never a fitting excuse to deny his will, no matter how inadequate you are or no matter how uncomfortable it makes you feel. Friends, do you think I'm adequate for this desk? If you do, you would be mistaken. Do you think Damon and Jim are adequate to be elders at Mount Zion? Do you think that Aaron and Heath are adequate to be deacons at Mount Zion? Do you think Toby is adequate to lead in worship of a holy God? Do you think David and Alvin are adequate to to fulfill the ministerial roles that they're doing? Do you think Mark is adequate to do what the Lord has called him to do? Do you think you're adequate to go share the gospel of life in the midst of a dark and dead world? Let me assure you, you're not. And the fact of your inadequacy that will be highlighted when he asks you and honors you to participate in these things, the fact that you're inadequate gives you no excuse not to go and be faithful to what the Lord has called you to do. For he is the one that calls forth children for Abraham out of rocks. He is the God according to what Paul said in the book of Romans that calls into existence that which does not exist. 
You can't say these things about him on one hand and then use your own ability as an excuse not to do what he has sent you forth to do, no matter how uncomfortable it makes you. Or if you want me to put a finer point on it, I will say this. Pretentious humility is false humility. Let me tell you guys, you can pretend to be humble. That's what pretentious means, all right? You can, you can pretend unto humility when actually you're prideful if the purpose of that humility is to get you off the hook for something that you are uncomfortable with doing. Oh, I'm just, I'm just not capable. It's just not my gifting. Huh? Not called to it. Of course, that's a problem for John when it's Jesus Christ himself that's the one calling you to let it go. Pretentious humility is false humility. It is the crutch of faithless cowards attempting to save face. To get off the hook in a way that looks righteous. Let me tell you what, if John's going to fulfill the command, if he's going to be righteous, then what he's going to do is do what he cannot do and feel incredibly awkward while he's doing it. Matthew Henry put it this way, and then we'll move on from John and begin to focus on Christ. Matthew Henry said it like this, with the will of Christ and this reason for it, John was entirely satisfied and then he suffered him The same modesty which made him at first decline the honor Christ offered him now made him to do service that Christ enjoined to him. Note that no pretense of humility must make us decline our duty. As a matter of fact, it's not that this baptism was unfitting. Jesus said it is particularly fitting. That's what Jesus says when when Christ woes him up and he says, John, cast it off. I agree with your premise, but I disagree with your application. He says to him in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting. It is fitting. And I'm not going to do all the Greek study this morning, but I'll just tell you this. That does not mean it's appropriate. That doesn't mean Christ is going, hey, listen, I understand your concerns, but look, I know some stuff you don't know, and this is actually appropriate, even though it feels like it's not. That's not what what it means. The word for fitting means eminence and excellence. Jesus says, John, cast that thought off. You understand some stuff, but you don't understand everything. And I'm here to tell you that you baptizing me today is not only appropriate, it is excellent. That you do so. That this is the revealed, ordained will of a perfectly glorious, perfectly righteous, and perfectly holy God. What you're about to do today, John, is excellent and it shouldn't make you awkward. What it ought to make you is joyful. And here's why it should. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but pronouns are important. They've always been important. And there is great joy in the pronoun usage that Christ employs concerning his baptism. Look what he says in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now. Let it go. 
For thus it is excellent for us to fulfill all righteousness. He says it is fitting for us to do this. Note, he does not say it is fitting for me to do this. Because see, that's what I would expect. I think that's probably what John would have expected. If you're John, and the honor that is being bestowed upon you for service to Christ serves to highlight your own inadequacy in your own heart so that you look at Jesus himself and argue with him. That's a gutsy move. Typically, not recommended. But here he is, the creator of all that exists and the holder together of that existence. And John, who is currently being held together by the will of Christ himself, like in his physical, spiritual being, looks at him and decides, I'm going to argue with you. No, I shouldn't be doing this. (laughs) Yeah. You would expect, if you're John... For Jesus to say, okay, John, let it go. And here's why. Because I have a priority that's not you. I have a priority that's not your comfort. I don't care if you feel awkward. I don't care if this highlights your inability. I am able. And so, therefore, get over it. Because this is necessary for me to fulfill all righteousness. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says it's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. I don't think I have to tell you this if you're a regular at Mount Zion. I think you probably already know. If you're a student of Scripture, you certainly know Christ does not need us. Amen? Amen. Hey, buddy, that ought to be a strong amen. That's a joyful amen. You don't want a God that needs you. You are frail, you are broken. And even the great things in you that God has put in you today are only in a jar of clay that will smash against the rocks if hard-pressed. If God is dependent on you, if He is dependent on me, He will most certainly fail. But Jesus doesn't need you. You say, man, that hurts my feelings. No, friends, what it's going to do, it should make you feel awesome. Should make you feel awesome. God doesn't need you. Christ doesn't need us. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, concerning this salvation, Jesus said, With man it is impossible. In John chapter 2, verse 24, it said, Jesus on his part, I love that statement, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Because he made man and he's holding every single man together. Colossians chapter 1. Jesus doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need John the Baptist. Instead, in this eminence of the excellence that is fitting, he willfully chooses his people to come along with him. Friends, Jesus doesn't need you. Out of the goodness of his own heart, he has chosen for you to come with him. 
Oh, he could have fulfilled all righteousness all by himself. He didn't need John. But he said, John, I've come today to tell you something that is excellent. I've come today to enjoin you to something that is wonderful. I've come today to make you part of what I'm doing that is the preeminence of all existence. And so, John, you may feel awkward, but buddy, it's a good day. It's a good day. Today you get to be part of something that you have no business of your own accord being part of. Today you get to be in a ministry that is wonderful because it is fitting for us, for you and for me together to fulfill all righteousness in Christ's excellency. He chooses us to come along with him as he would later say to his apostles in John chapter 15 and verses 11 and in 16. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John, I don't need you, but I choose you. I choose you that we together, that us, me and you, may this very day in the excellencies of the ordained will of God fulfill all righteousness. And so very briefly this morning, let's move our focus now from what John is going through to what Christ is accomplishing. If this baptism that is so awkward for John and highlights his own inadequacies, if this baptism is so excellently fitting, then what is it fitting for? Well, You don't have to be a great exegeter of Scripture to be able to say, according to Jesus' words, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. But what does that mean? Well, generally speaking, what we see here is Christ fulfilling his humility. And scholarship has written much about this. I mean, if you have one of those Bibles with a line across the middle of the page that has, you know, unadulterated truth above the line and the opinion of men below the line, then you're going to see some of this there. Uh, there's been whole books written about it, and, and rightfully so. It's, it's solid stuff, and Scripture speaks to it. Generally speaking, what we see Christ here is fulfilling righteousness in his humility. Well, once again, if, if you still have your finger there, if you don't, you can flip back in Luke chapter 3 and verse 5. Luke chapter 3 and verse 5, quoting once again out of Isaiah Speaking of the ministry of John, it says that every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. Now that quote isn't out of Isaiah 11 and it's not out of Isaiah 52, it's out of Isaiah 57. In verse 14, where the Lord says, and it shall be, build up, build up, prepare the way, and remove every obstruction from my people's way. That's the quote. But guess what we're going to do? We're going to go to the context. And in Isaiah 57, verse 14. And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. 
For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What a beautiful thing. That the holy God who dwells on high from all eternity would condescend to come and also dwell amongst the lowly and the contrite of heart. And indeed, Christ has. And I can testify to it because he's come to dwell with me. And I know he's come to dwell with you. And we are lowly people. And so praise the Lord that in the ministry of John, he was proclaiming a straightening of paths and a a leveling of mountains and a filling up of valleys that would include Christ's coming to dwell with the lowly. And here we see Christ coming and, and, and vindicating this ministry and saying, yes, it is my ministry. And it is what is foretold. We see Christ identifying himself with sinners, those for which he will become sin. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here we see him coming in his humility, testifying to his death and his resurrection that is to come a foreshadowing in this water baptism of his true baptism. For if you'll remember from last week in Luke chapter 12, verse 49 and 50, he said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. I mean, there's no doubt that generally speaking, even specifically out of Isaiah chapter 57, verse 14 and 15, that what you see here is Christ fulfilling righteousness alongside John in his humility. He's humbled. These people are assuming it's a repentance baptism, and therefore he would need to repent. After all, he is becoming himself to become sin. It is a testimony of his death and resurrection to come, and yet there must be something more here. And I don't say that there is simply something more. I say there must be something more. All of that is true, but it's incomplete. And the reason I say that there must be something more is because the word for fulfill means to bring to completion. It's the same word that Jesus used in John chapter 15 when he said, I have come that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Not full like a bucket is full of water that may become empty again, but the fullness of completion where the purpose and the will of God has been brought to its designed end. He says it is excellently fitting for us to fulfill, to bring to completion all righteousness. And so the reason that I say that there must be something more here than simply Christ fulfilling 
righteousness in his humility is because identifying himself with sinners and becoming sin is not being brought to completion at Bethany on Jordan. As a matter of fact, it is just beginning. The fact that it is a testimony of the fullness of his baptism into death and resurrection that is still to come is not something that is being brought to completion by him and John on this day. It is something that is looking forward to an event that is still three years away. Identifying with and testifying to realities not yet come is not completion, but instead indicates a current state of the exact opposite. It indicates a current state of incompletion. And so while all of that is true and good and glorious, that Christ condescended to come and be amongst the lowly and become sin for us and a testimony of his true baptism that is to come, That's not what's being completed on this day. So it begs the question, what particular righteousness, what particular righteousness that indeed encompasses all righteousness? Because this isn't just fitting. It's not just excellent to bring to completion a righteousness. This is excellent to bring to completion all. All righteousness. What righteousness are Jesus and John about to complete? Well, it's not a general walking in humility. It is a specific fulfilling of all righteousness at the baptism of Christ. Here's the deal, guys. The crowd may well assume that his baptism was unto repentance. No matter. Let him assume for the moment. Because what Christ is really after is a revelation of knowing. What Christ is really after, the light that is coming to this world is for people to see the light. And he gets it. Last this morning, look with me in the Gospel of John chapter 1. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, in verse 29 through 31, it says, The next day he, that being John the Baptist, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Boy, we don't even have time to dig into that. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water. You know what I love about the Gospel of John? The Gospel of John doesn't just tell you the who, the what, the when, the where. The Gospel of John also tells you the why and the how. And so here it is. You want to know how righteousness is being fulfilled? You want to know the excellency of what will bring it to completion? John says, this is what my ministry was about. 
for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. That he, who is the totality of righteousness, the totality, all righteousness, might be revealed to Israel. The righteousness that is being excellently brought to completion that Jesus didn't need John to do, but in his goodness chose to bring John and people like me and you along beside him as he's doing it is the revelation of his own deity before the people of Israel. That's what's being completed. That's what Jesus is coming to John and go, feel awkward, buddy. Let it go. Let it go because today is an excellent day. Today is the day where out of my grace and goodness, I've chosen you. So so quit being awkward and start rejoicing because I've chosen you to come alongside me to bring to completion the totality of righteousness, which is nothing less than me. It's Christ Himself. And we are here today that they may, through this simple water baptism that for a moment they're going to misinterpret, so that they may know that it is their God who speaks when I say, I am. Jesus accomplishes His goal. He accomplishes it first in John. It's always about a multitude that is made up of individuals. He accomplishes it first in John, for he says in the Gospel of John in chapter 1 and verse 32, that John bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him. Like we said, man, when this is going down, John is just beginning to receive the revelation of who Christ is. And so John says, when this day started, I didn't even know him. I knew he's my cousin. I didn't know he was God most high. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Righteousness was brought to completion first in the person of John, and then through what he did, to Israel at large. For in Matthew chapter 3 in verses 16 through 17, Matthew continues and said, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus came to John. He honored him. 
It highlighted his inadequacy. It made him feel awkward. It made him protest. Christ agreed with John's premise, but he rejected his application. He said, no, John, today is an excellent day. Today is an excellent day for me to do what I could do on my own, but instead have chosen you to come along with me. Today is an excellent day, John. Today is the day when we bring to completion all righteousness. Not in humility, not in identifying with sin, but when I show you and Israel who I am, when the Father Himself speaks of His love for me from on high. That is an excellent day. Amen? Amen. Listen, friend, the reality is this. Is that while every single experience of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is particular to the individual that experiences it, it is personal the reality is, is the nuts and bolts have the same commonality for us all. For we were all conceived, born, and lived in the iniquity of our sin and our own inadequacy until the moment that Jesus Christ said, today is an excellent day. It's an excellent day. For it's no longer me and you, now it's us. This is true for John, it's true for you. My friend, it'll be awkward, it'll be uncomfortable. It will be glorious and it will be excellent on the day that you see him for who he is. John saw him. The people at Bethany on Jordan saw him. I pray today would be the day that you see him and cease being the offspring in a generation of vipers. Instead, make straight the paths of the Lord, for the kingdom of heaven and his king is at hand. I pray today would be the day that you place your faith in Christ. And in doing so, become part of the kingdom. You can do it right where you sit. You can do it on the stairs. You can do it in your car. I just pray that you do. Let's pray.